Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Isotope. We craft innovative audio products that inspire and enable people to be creative. Visit isotope.com for more info. This episode is also brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be across all devices. Visit sonarworks.com for more info. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuga, Periphery, The Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. Also, I want to take a second to tell you about something I'm very, very excited about, and it's the URM Summit. Once a year, we hold an event where hundreds of producers from all over the world come together for four days of networking, workshops, seminars, and, of course, hanging out. You know, this industry is all about relationships. And think about it. What could you gain from getting to personally know your peers from all over the world who have the same goals as you, the same struggles as you, and who can not only help you with inspiration and motivation, but also with potential professional collaborations? I've seen a lot of professional collaborations come from the summit in the past. And speaking of networking and relationships, there's no other event where you'll get to learn from and hang out with some of the very best in the production business. I mean, you could go to something like NAM, but good luck getting more than five minutes with your hero. At this, you actually will get to hang out, like hang out, hang out. And just a few of this year's instructors are Andrew Wade, Kerpaloo, Blasco, Taylor Larson, Billy Decker, Kanan Kevin Cherko, Jesse Cannon, and more. Seriously, this is one of the best and most productive events you will ever go to. So if that sounds like something that's up your alley, go to urmsummit.com to find out more. Every once in a while, you have a guest that you don't need to do any prep for because... You just know that they have their shit together as a podcaster. And if you've been listening to this podcast through the years, you know that Jesse Cannon has come on a few times and that he's definitely one of the best guests because he always has just enlightening and wise and well-thought-out things to say about how to make life work as an entrepreneur and in the music business. Now, if you're not familiar with him, uh, he's a recording engineer slash mastering engineer that's worked in various capacities on bands like The Cure, Animal Collective, The Misfits, Dillinger Escape Plan, Brand New, Limp Bizkit, Man Overboard, No Effects, like the list goes on and on. But he's also a great author. He's written books such as Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business, which has gone on to be one of the most popular books on the music business, as well as the book Processing Creativity, The Tools, Practices, and Habits Used to Make Music You're Happy With. Uh, He also hosts two podcasts, Off the Record and Noise Creators, and uh, he has a new one that we're going to talk about in this episode. I mean, this guy has done everything. Uh, He's super impressive. He's run businesses, written books done the engineer thing. Like, there's so much you can learn from him, and so I'm going to just quit talking and get to the episode. Let's do it. 
Okay, so lyrics. You, um, we're talking about how lyrics just look dumb when there's no music. Yeah, I mean, is so I, I guess like when we we started off was like you were talking about how you're not the biggest fan of political lyrics. I actually really like them when they're done well, and I think it's just so incredibly rare. But what I was saying is there used to be a period where we were doing three to four sessions a day, and the lyric sheet inevitably gets left on the music stand when the vocalist comes to do it. And every one of them, no matter how good the lyrics were, they'd say, God, this is the dumbest thing I've ever read. So this girl I was dating at the time was like, you should just leave a WB Yates poem up on the music stand and see if somebody says it. And sure enough, everybody would say it when I would do it. They're like, God, this is so dumb. It's like, yeah, I'm sure this is a lot uh, more rudimentary than your uh, pop punk song about how your girlfriend left you last summer. You're still not over it. Yeah, you're definitely the poet. Or like a William Blake poem or something. Something out there. But it's just the thing is that most lyrics look dumb unless you know the emotion that the music has brought to it. Yeah, well, absolutely. So a band I really, really like, have always really liked is Korn. Uh, Not all their stuff, but they have a lot great songs over the years. Um, And they really throw down. But uh, And now, especially, compared to bands half their age, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. But their lyrics have always been so dumb. Like, so like like elementary school level but when he delivers them with that music it just i don't know it just works if you were to write those out man that would they would be lower than sixth grade they'd be like second grade you're exactly right and you know it's a really funny thing is that like i you know obviously so the the listeners may not know this but i worked for ross robinson who produced those early records for a lot of years and um, Ross would always talk about this, that, like, he knew the emotion would be so big. So, like, when you hear those stories of, like, Ross taking Jonathan to see his father for the first time in years and confront the molestation and all that stuff. Um, and it's like he knew he had to get him in an emotional mindset that is just so intense so that this would actually work. And that's part of the thing. And I think, you know, that's the lesson for the listeners is, like. You know, you always got to make that game plan to see the band's weaknesses and go, how the hell am I going to compensate for it? Because I think, you know, 80% to 90% of bands, you can find some way to compensate for what's bad with them if you're just creative enough. So that was a conscious thing on Ross Robinson's part that, like, the lyrics are very elementary school. The way to overcome this is to pack so much emotion behind them that, it just, it doesn't matter. I, I'm intellectualizing a little. Like, I, the thing I could always I always say is Ross is, like, um, he's one of the hardest persons to learn his communication language. But when you learn it, he's, like, the most profoundly intelligent human being ever. And, like, Ross, what he would really say is that this is just, like, his overall ethos. Like, this is why he throws, you know, like, during the Cure record where he's launching music stands 80 feet across the, the room and everything. Like, he's just cares about that emotion and doesn't really care I shouldn't say doesn't care about much else, but he knows that a guitar being in tune, the drum toms being in key, the EQ being right, any of that stuff, and not to say he doesn't care about tone, like the guy has like, you know, $20,000 Elam 251s and stuff like that, but like he knows that all that matters is if there's feeling there, and he lets that rule it more than you know, I've gotten to be in the studio with hundreds of producers, and he's better at doing that than anybody I've ever seen. It's a lot harder to do than I think people realize, because you do have to let things go that, as an engineer and as someone that's getting paid to be critical and have everything meet a certain criteria, I guess, at least on a technical level. I'm not saying that, like, every single engineer is looking for shit to sound like the Necrophagist record or 
dream theater. But still, like, you know, your producer's still getting paid to be critical, right? Like, not allow mistakes through, not allow stuff to be less than pro or whatever, whatever the criteria is. And oftentimes when you hit these emotional highs, like, you are going to be sacrificing something on the technical end. I think more often than not, um, technique starts to go by the wayside once emotion starts to really take over. That kind of fits in with, like, what people say about trying to perform uh, things that require fine motor skills when a lot of adrenaline is pumping or mm -hmm. trying to think clearly when you have a very strong emotion. It kind of just almost makes sense that when, if someone's emotion is running at that kind of level, that their technical ability is going to be diminished. I think that that's how people work. So you're going to be sacrificing something. And so to know where that line is drawn, how much sacrifices okay, that's, uh, you know, that's a lot harder than people realize, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, a big thing I've been on with this is divergent stream concept. So I think you and I have talked about this a bunch, but so for the listeners, this is the idea that if you put your elbows together and your hands as far, far apart as you can, that's a divergent stream. And so just about everything has a divergent stream, that the middle is kind of dropping wait, out. Wait, 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 have we talked about this before? I feel like you and I, I mean, you know, the, for the, the listeners don't realize that you and I are like texting about juices all day and everything yeah. so, like, in movies. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know, but it's okay. So here's the idea is that, you know, every behavior and every performer, you could be like, oh, uh, prog metal guys, they're, oh my God, they're the smart guys reading J.R.R. Tolkien who practice their instruments all day, but they're also the incompetent people who are the dumbest people on earth who are just like emotional. And you have to know how to deal with kind of those two poles, and there's not a lot of people usually in the center of those. They're very extreme things, and that's most, I think, personality types and learning which one to deal with with which technique. There's some people that are thinking too much, and you have to get them out of your head. So like a Ross Robinson thing with that would be like kick them in the legs or putting his hand in front of their faces so that they wouldn't be able to think so much about getting it right. But then there's the other people, they need a real lot of concentration and that actually makes them good. And then you have to get everybody out of the control room and stop having there be a TV on because one guy wants to watch the fucking sports game and everything. And learning which part of the divergent stream usually and like seeing people as real poles, I think, in a lot of personalities is like really helpful for figuring out a course of action because odds are the center easy medium answer is usually not going to get you a lot of results. Yeah, probably not. And uh, I think you're totally right with this, but let me give you one other example of something that I've come across that I thought was interesting. So we were just talking about Muse, that dorky prog band. <laughs> exactly. But, no, I actually really love them or yeah. did for a long time, but yeah, um some great records. Yeah, I was I was a I mean, I, I kind of stopped paying attention around 2009 or 10. That era from like 2005 to 2009, they were on fire. Mm -hmm. And I was really into them and did everything I could to find out more about them. And it's kind of, they kind of spoke to me on many levels because that classical background that they had kind of matched mine. And then also the way that they could orchestrate weird arrangements. I just kind of felt like they were coming from a really similar place as me musically. He had all the same influence 
influences, the piano pieces he would start playing. A lot of my friends didn't recognize where they came from, but like I knew what he what pieces he was lifting that shit from. One time they ripped off something from an obscure video game soundtrack. One of the only video game soundtracks that as a kid I went and found <laughs> in a weird store. Like he Which one? I don't even remember anymore. Okay. We we're talking ten years ago. Yeah. But the point is that I was really into this band. Like they spoke to me. And um and so I managed to talk a friend of mine who had worked with their producer to send me some of their stems. Oh wow. Back, back in like 2008 like before the stems thing was a thing and uh so i got stems for like super massive black hole oh, wow. stuff from that album a really big album and this is a band that's very technically proficient and intellectually advanced but their emotional moments are fucking sloppy uh mm-hmm. like there was a lot of slop like when he was playing his guitar solos and he'd get to those crazy moments where he's just like going insane, it was actually pretty fucking sloppy. And I just thought that that was very interesting that a band that's like regarded as so musically adept, technically proficient, uh, but who were also emotional as fuck and their delivery also would get sloppy in those moments like it doesn't matter who you are the moment that that emotion starts coming out your skills will go down the drain i think i think that's dead on and you know one of the other things i really appreciate about them back then they have some of the best behind the scenes making of record videos on youtube oh yeah they're great and because they're like in the types of studios where there's seven recording advice, like I remember like at one point they're in the hot tub and they're recording hand claps. You know, there's just such good stuff there that if you're listening to this, you're like, oh, I want to, you know, learn more creative things I can do and stuff like that and see this band and you love this band. They, they probably have like three hours you can watch of them recording. It's incredible. They've made records. Like, I remember watching those in the studio videos because, dude, I hated in the studio videos because, like, I would watch metal bands doing them and, like, there'd always be, like, this guy who, like, thought he was a comedian, but he really was just not funny. <laughs> like, they, they'd all, you know, they'd all, like, crack jokes, but, like, they're not comedians. They're It's not okay. Like, don't. Don't do this. You just look stupid and just really badly shot stuff and just watching people uh, record badly to a click track. And it was just like the worst, the worst videos you can imagine. And these Muse videos, yeah, they're doing the hand claps in the hot tub. They're like, they have like multiple percussion sets. They're like going on location to weird places. It's like the way that you heard about great records being made back in the day, like those stories that, you know, that we heard that made us be excited about great records. Um, That's like what they were doing. And I thought that that was very inspiring. It was like, wow, there's a band that's actually holding the torch for greatness in recording. And that's actually kind of rare. I'm 100% with you. One of the things I will be talking about a little at the URM Summit is two of the ideas that we just talked about, one of which, which is the thing we were talking about with Ross knowing that because these lyrics are a little rudimentary, that you have to find a way no matter what, and that most bands, you can figure out a plan if you're creative enough to make this record work. You just have to have a lot of tools in your head. But the other thing, they're one of the few bands You know, the promise of Dawes was that we were going to get all these bands like the Flaming Lips and Muse that used every instrument on earth and you'd have these gigantic orchestrations and you'd have all these things and that every band was going to be using everything. And that promise has been total bullshit um, because emotion is key and motion is not always using just a million different instruments because they don't all go well together. And um, I think that one of the things people don't realize about 
uh, getting feedback and projects is what projects are a lot of time is just a lot of limitations and telling you what colors you have to paint with and where the lines are. And then they get mad. And this is what I'm going to talk about at the summit is that when somebody gives them a limitation that they don't like, and I'm going to talk a lot about how you take direction from your clients and or the record label as well, and make it work with something you're going to be happy with as well, and how you have to see those limits. So kind of like avoiding that situation where, uh, let's just say like a mixer loves the mix up until he starts to deal with mix notes, and then feels like the band or the label ruined everything like i loved it until i had to start doing their feedback and now it's not my record anymore like i've heard that so many times from people they divorce themselves from from the record at so i mean they it's not they don't divorce themselves as in they quit but they yeah they like mentally divorce they mentally do they check out yeah and a lot of what i'm going to talk about is like one why that's toxic to your career and getting further gigs Two, why that's toxic to your creative output. And three, you know, I'm lucky enough that 2000 records and uh, about to be 20 years, I learned those lessons after making those mistakes and now see very clear answers on how you don't let that fuck your life up. Dude, and it will fuck your life up. The guys that I've seen, like, go down that path. Okay, now, everybody goes that down, down that path a little, I think. Mm-hmm. Because... Part of your growth. Yeah, it's natural. It's natural to have those feelings, but, like, you have to evolve past them because they will take you down. The guys that I've seen succumb to them and not evolve past them are, without fail, they're all guys who, at one point, were at the top of the genre and top of their game and just, like, the dudes of the moment, and they fell off. But the thing is, they didn't just fall off in in the way that will happen naturally when a trend you're a part of simmers down. That happens to a lot of people, but then they keep doing a lot of great work. It's not like suddenly they're homeless or something and, you know, or have to go get a job at Starbucks. Like they keep working. Maybe they're not the, the person of the moment anymore, but they've made a great career with great relationships and they keep getting work. What in this case, these people that I know who let the negativity consume them, uh, and specifically when it came to dealing with client feedback, Feedback, man, these guys really mess their careers up because that toxicity starts to spread into everything. It spreads into the quality of your work. It spreads into your ability to communicate with your clients. It spreads into what you carry into your personal life. And then the thing is, once you start poisoning those three aspects, uh, they then start to have snowball effects, which in turn poison those three aspects even further. Yeah, and you, what you're saying is dead on. And like the other thing I want to impress is like, I'm I'm even going to use like a lot of psychological backing from things because I read so many books researching my last book on creativity and then my girlfriend being a psychologist uh, in grad school right now, it's like all I see is these things. And what you were just saying is even further backed up with psychologies, which is that when you start pointing the finger outwards instead of inwards, it inevitably alienates people around you in all parts of your life, whether it's your friendships, your relationships, your family, anything. The common thing they see with people that they say are like high functioning, people who aren't crippled and always ruining relationships with people, is that they've learned to point the finger inward, take it and have an argument inside their head where they can hear the other person's side and imagine it. So for example, you hear the band say, you know, you know, you just made this hi-fi mix that sounds beautiful. Like this happens to me all the time. I'm like, oh my God, all everything I've A-B'd against, I fucking killed it. Fuck everything. They're like, yeah, it sounds too good. I want it more raw. 
And I go, these fucking losers, they just listen to shitty local bands. Fuck them. I know they're just listening to that shit local band that recorded with a microphone up their ass with a fucking focus right, Scarlet. Fuck these motherfuckers. <laughs> and I get all bad. And then I go, you know, bands that aren't popular yet usually make a raw record that works a little bit more for them. And then they do the polished record. Maybe the next record will be polished. Let me get some decapitators and a Kramer tape and start bringing this down to their level and try to find a way where I can still make it a little bit more raw, but sound cool and interesting and meet them on the ground. And then all of a sudden, we've made a cool sounding record that elevates them to that next level. And sometimes I don't get the second record because they do so well, but you know what? It gets me a lot more clients. Man, that that reaction is so dead on because it's... I had to see it in other people. So these people that I'm thinking about specifically, I had to see them do it to where I then started seeing myself do it and to where I could really put the brakes on and get... Because I didn't realize that I did it. And I didn't... I guess I didn't realize what it looked like from the outside when I saw other people do it. But these notes would come in about these things that clients wanted. And yeah, they would be things like that. Or they would be things like that they couldn't quite articulate into engineering terms. And, you know, why would you get mad at a client for not being able to articulate in an engineering term. They're not an engineer. That's why they're coming to you. Mm -hmm. But engineers get mad about that, which is the dumbest thing to get mad about. So they would get mad about things like that and get mad about the requests and like think that they're idiots and you know they're so stupid and all this stuff. And it's like, wait a second. Why, why are they stupid for wanting what they want? It's yeah. like, this isn't even about stupid or smart. Like they're just telling you what they want taste-wise, artistically. Like, you're taking it to such a level that it doesn't exist on, turning it into something that it isn't. They're just telling you what more or less salt on the dish, with or without mm -hmm. butter. Like, that's that's what they're telling you. That like, fucking listen to them. It, it's not that big of a deal. It really isn't. Just make them happy. And I don't know, once I started to see what it, what it looked like, I realized it's really ugly. It's really unappealing. It's toxic. It's repulsive. And no wonder people stopped coming to these guys. Like, no wonder. I would too. Like Yeah. And it is true. There's one thing, a concept I often talk about is like good faith and bad faith arguments. That To use a political thing that's very obvious to everybody in the world these days is you'll hear somebody from the NRA say something and they're clearly saying this because the NRA is paid by gun companies because they want to sell more guns. They don't care about anything except selling more guns. And then you hear somebody else on another side say something because they make campaign funding off of it. And what you need to decipher sometimes is a good faith and a bad faith argument. But what I would argue is the majority of the time a musician is arguing because they just want to be happy with what they want to hear. Now, is sometimes what they want to hear just their guitar louder because they want to be happy because hearing themselves loud makes them happy? 1,010%. Picking out, picking out the good faith and the bad faith argument is really crucial and then being kind to the person when they're arguing in good faith, that they're just trying to be happy and giving them that. But when they're doing the bad faith of also pointing out, like, buddy, come on. Like, let's be honest here. That fucking guitar is pretty fucking loud. Listen to four of your favorite records. Your guitars are as loud or just as loud and reasoning with them. But so many people don't think about how to communicate with it. And so what my argument is, is if you can't communicate to get your way, it's probably your fucking fault that the record's not going your way. So they're once on, I'm not going to say, if I say what record it is, people are going to know who I'm talking about. 
so on a record I was involved with that had a lot of great lead guitar playing and a few guests. And uh, it was just like a guitar spectacle of a record. And the guy who took over as the producer mixer guy from the band, he played a guest solo too. He was pretty good. And his solo was the loudest thing on the entire record. Like it was louder than any vocals. It was louder than any other solos. It was like, it was the loudest fucking thing on the record. So I remember that the band would bring it up and he would argue, he would argue, we'd get mad and argue and argue and argue. That's That was a bad faith ego-based argument for sure. Cause it was objectively the loudest thing on the record. It, it was like you had your level for solos and lead vocals that was like, yeah, they're kind of popping, but they're good. And then this song comes on and it's it's good, it's good. And then bam, solo. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, what what is going on here? Like, it was so fucking loud that it, it started messing with the mastering compressors and like really in all kinds of weird pumping and ducking happening um, with the music tracks. Like it was just, it was obscene. And so I've, I've seen very extreme versions of that. I have definitely seen quite a few musicians, um, I guess have weird, like weird motives that are not for the better of the, of the project. I, but most of the time, I think it's just people wanting to be happy with their art. Yeah. And, you know, there's like a weird thing, too. Like, I remember I talked to some producer and he's like, well, I have a rule that no one uh, in the band can come on their own parts. I'm like, see, this goes back to the divergent streams thing is like there's a problem with that is that there's some guys who hear every detail and part of what they makes the thing like there's drummers like I am. You know, if there's one thing I'm good at producing, it's like I know drum parts. I'm very good with that stuff. And there is some guys that astound me, like they're like, oh, you know, let's ride the splashes a little and we'll cut off their decays. And it'll, I'm like, holy shit, I didn't realize riding a splash decay down a little bit here and there to, in between the notes can really give some clarity to the splash because I fucking hate splash symbols and I hate 311. So I never realized that. And then you all of a sudden learn something by letting that guy comment on his parts. Like you can't just shut it down, but you do have to give people perspective on their, whether they're arguing in good faith or bad faith. Good faith, bad faith, or this might fit into to both categories, but it's almost a category all of its own. Stuff that takes a long time and doesn't make one bit of difference. Yes. Yeah, and I'm and I'm not sure. I think that that has elements of both at times. <laughs> you, you know, my argument for that, and this is going to be a whole other subject, is uh, that all-in budgets are bad things. Is just that, you know, when it comes down to people uh, arguing for things that take forever. It dismotivates it. Like, you know, I think I think about all the time is I do a lot of ghostwriting articles for people. And so a very common pay structure is you get paid by the word. So when you get paid by the word, writing you are makes you a dollar more than writing your. And being bloviating and... It also makes you sound like RoboCop. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. Um being and then writing more words about things when people really just want to read a minimum of words with an idea communicated clearly, it doesn't get you a good result as the person paying me to do the thing. But saying, hey, you know, we would eat around this many words 
and we pay you this much money to do it. If the research takes longer and by the hour, da, 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 and you have a good faith system with that and they see that some things are really easy to research because you're just kind of taking somebody else's content and reshaping it into a new context. Whereas if I have to do hours of research on like I, a lot of what I write to is like white papers on strategies different musicians are using to promote themselves and then I give that to the client and doing that and then giving back a thing by the hour works. And it's the same thing with like music is like one of the best things about the hourly rate, as long as it's not, you know, the person taking uh, a million texts and setting memes back all day is if your engineer is really working all those hours each day is that there is a huge, huge motivation that if you really find things that are going to be details that really work, well, then you're paying for it and you've been motivated by that. But then you also can be dismotivated to go, mm, maybe I don't need to go down that yeah, road. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm not sure how I feel about hourly. Uh, I, I see why it works for some people. Um, my memory of working hourly was having managers say shit like, we don't pay you to take a piss. Yes, that's the, that's the bad faith argument there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and me saying never again. Yes. I think that that's the issue is that there needs to be, like, fairness in how and what somebody's paying for. Like, I regularly, with my hourly clients, the ones I have on that, it's like that thing. If, like, if I go on a long story where I'm like, oh, maybe you guys could tell me uh, I'm, like, writing this book on this. What do you feel about this? You know, I go, all right, you know, 30 minutes of that was me being a dickhead. Yes, fair enough. I think it's it's that thing is that you need that trusting relationship, and that doesn't always work with um, managers. You know, something we, well, we should also say for the listeners who aren't experienced in this stuff is, you know, managers pride themselves on bullying us and saying to their clients, I got them down on price for this, and it makes us want to kill ourselves because we worked really hard, and then they blow us down so they don't see the inverse of the relationship. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, that is that is their job. It sucks. And I'm saying that f knowing fully well that I know some managers out there who are friends with both of us who are some of the best people I've ever met, mm -hmm. like a... Uh, like minority or whatever. That's the thing is not everybody does that. And some of the people who are doing it, I mean, it's a good thing to get the best rate for your client. Like pinching some of those pennies really brings home a thing at the end of the day. But there's also some of those things where it's not very in good faith yet again, that yeah. it's like, you know, this person sat here, you know, I busted my ass. I put in tons of pre-production time. I go on my way to work. I'm listening to the songs and listening to other records, trying to get ideas of what niche will find for you that will work for you. Like kiss my ass that you're going to be mad, mad that for like 10 minutes, I talked to the vet about the dog in a fucking 80 hour week. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with, uh, with this whole good faith, bad faith argument scenario or scenarios that we're talking about, that really makes me think, of of something that I, I notice get argued a lot these days, back and forth. Uh, I've seen a lot of people say that context doesn't matter with the things that people say or do, um, and I've I think context matters. Yes. Context fucking matters. Like it, it context is everything in my opinion. Yeah. Um, because actions or words or it's the context is what gives things meaning. Um, and all the way to like, if you kill somebody, yeah. the context is what determines whether you're going to get the death penalty, life in prison, or a manslaughter charge and out. Or walk free. Or walk free, exactly. Context is everything, in my opinion. And so when it comes to these arguments, like 
whether it's uh, getting a better rate for the client or turn the snare up here or there, there could be any number of reasons for it. And some of them could be good, some of them could be bad. But the context in which that snare getting louder uh, exists, I think, is what determines whether it should be brought up or not. Um, can you hear it in relation to everything else? Is the character of the snare one of the most driving things in that song and is it getting lost here or like whatever or is the drummer just trying to overtake everything and he plays a bunch of inflections on the snare that really don't make any difference and he's the only person who cares and he wants to make sure that you hear every single little thing yes the ptsd is getting real i know <laughs> it, it's definitely it's definitely real um so i want to take a second to to talk about a few things that i, I want to hear a little bit about what you've been up to because i know that i know you're like you're always evolving in your career and uh you're a renaissance man you're always doing new things and different things and so you know you, this is third time on the podcast i believe yes both other times we were talking about different books yes that you had written so I, I know that you have new stuff going on now so let's talk about it uh i guess the first big thing is um so what is out in trailer form right now is um for the last year i've been working at atlantic records um making audio documentaries and developing different podcasts for bands. So if you think of it this way, what Atlantic has started to do is they've been going pretty hard on that they want to start making podcast content around their artists. So what I am hired to do is my first podcast for them of the ones I've been making a bunch of them. This is the first one that's coming out as a season called Inside the Album, which you can subscribe to now on like any of them. It's up there. There's a trailer and you can hit subscribe. But what I've done is Atlantic like literally said to me, let's take that VH1 classic albums type format, like where we go really in depth, just like the thing we were talking about with Muse, how they made these amazing documentaries. But I went so far in depth on the creative process and got like the most honest answers of how each of these records gets made. And I made like these 60 minute documentaries on, I've done about 15 of them so far and the first eight are about to go up. We're like all different artists, Vance Joy onto Nothing Nowhere, onto Grants, onto the uh, Mean Girls original cast recording, the new Jason Mraz record. Are you, are you talking to the actual people who did them? Yeah, so if, if you think of it this way, first I start with an artist interview, then I talk to the producer, then I talk to the other musicians, then I talk to the A&R, and we all talk about like the real, real, real things. Damn, son, that sounds great. Yeah, honest to God, it's like the, the, the saddest thing for me is I've been like, you know, when I listen back to these, I'm like, man, this is like some of the things I'm most proud I've ever done in my life. And like, I was a 17-year-old kid who would be like, if I have for work at a fucking major label. I want my fucking past self to get in a fucking time machine, stab him in the fucking throat. Maybe your past self didn't have any good context yes. in which to view <laughs> yes. major labels. That's exactly right. Is now that I've seen it from the inside and, you know, you can give me all the, oh, uh, you're drinking the Kool-Aid stuff, but they've been so... Sounds like they're drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, and, like, they've honestly been so cool about letting me have free reign. I don't have to send to artists for approval. Like, sometimes I, like, write somebody, I say, hey, is it the spring EP? or Spring EP, that's about as far as they've ever edited me. It's like, just get the fucking title of the record right, for Christ's sakes. Because, <laughs> you know, it was printed four different ways. I'm like, which one is it? You know, but that is literally as far as they've edited me. And I've gotten like, you know, it's like that thing of like, you know, we talk about how there's shame for ghostwriters and rap and things like that. I get into all of that. And like what our Atlantic does to make 
great records and like it's really really been uh insanely lately like you know i'm 20 years into making 2000 some odd records the fact that i learned this much in this last year is like insane like seeing what really goes on these high scales of huge budgets and even on down to really developing artists like two of the different artists i've had on this are like don't have eight songs that exist in the world and talking about how they get developed and how they get promoted and all these things, like, you know, I'm talking to their marketing person about how they see the band and, like, what they're doing behind the scenes and all these things. So it's um it's really, really incredible. I'm really psyched to start seeing the world's reactions. It's really, um the trailer's been up for about five days, and the first episode should probably be up by the time this comes out. So, so where can I find the trailer? We're going to put it in the show notes. Atlanticpodcast.com, or if you just look up Atlantic Records inside the album. And then they also have me developing, I mean... I already have done a ton of other podcast stuff for them, but um, all of this goes along with artist launches and things like that. So I'm not able to talk about those ones yet, but there is so many more cool things they've been letting me do there that have just been totally, totally amazing over the last year. So I just want to, I want to divert for a second away from what you're doing and just talk about how you're getting it done. Cause it's not like you stopped working in the studio, no. right? And you, and you just said you're ghostwriting for a bunch of people. And I know of, you know, you've got the website too, mm -hmm. noise creators. Like I know of some other stuff you're doing with some people I'm involved with. Yes. Like, and then it sounds like Atlantic is keeping you pretty damn busy. And you've got a girlfriend. <laughs> yes, that keeps me busy. And you, you have time to watch movies, too. You're like, you've been working on, like, film projects. Yes. So I, I pay attention when we text. So how, how, like, how, yeah, I want to I know. Like, are you good at time management or what What the fuck? I'm, I'm good at time management. I think there's another thing, too, of that, like... If you get rid of a lot of the bullshit in your life. So here's another, you know, another big thing I'm going through that you and I've discussed a little is um, I have to move my recording studio that's been in the same place for 13 years and on 60 days notice and into a new space that I found on about 10 days notice. And to call this brutal while this is all going on is like the understatement of the day. Like, you know, we were just talking about mo watching movies and working movies. Like that's all been hit pause on for now. I've gotten, I've had no life for the past month um, and I have, still have another month of this to go and I have to file my taxes. I've learned a lot of things. I think a great example is you can pay a, if you're like super busy, there is always some college student who needs an extra $100 or $60 a week to just answer some emails for you. There's a program called Text Expander where every time I find myself writing the same email over and over again, I copy that email in and then I find a thing and I just hit that. There's canned responses in Gmail, which is very similar. Yes, I use those a lot. Yeah. That's what, especially when I'm, telling people how we do the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember you had a great one for the initial podcast we did. It's really is like getting that down. Like, you know, I master a dozen to 25 records a week. And a lot of that is... Wait, a dozen to 25 records a week? When I say a record, it could be a three-song EP to an LP. Okay, but projects. Yeah, some sort of... Okay. Some sort of release. So it could be 30 to 50 or 70 songs. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is... We're taping this the day after uh, the three-day weekend that ends the summer, which I always call uh, Hell Week. Because that's when everybody has set a deadline to be done with their project. So like this morning, I woke up to 20 records I have to do this week in addition to getting podcasts done, 
moving a fucking studio and like a bajillion other things. No, thanks for coming on. Well, you know, I was looking forward to this. Um, th- th- this is the nice break from uh, the hell. <laughs> and, and truth be told, I'm bouncing a, 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 two records down on another computer while we do this. So I think there's a lot of things like that's even just the thing of like, so I have one of those garbage can Mac pros and then I have an office at home. I do a lot of while I'm doing other things, I do all the listening work at one time and then I do all my bounces at one time. I do all my checking bounces at a different time, like where I have to listen back to this and make sure it's right. Thinking about how you work smart, not work hard is like a lot of it. And then a lot of it is too, is like that David Allen getting things done thing of like, I don't put anything on my to-do list that takes under five minutes. I just start doing the things. I double time my social media. So what I try to do, I obviously eat dinner with my girlfriend a good amount, but I try to do one meal a day where I do my entire hour of social media and I do that while I eat and I read that. I read any articles I want to read and I do all that just during my, I call it my hour of peace. I'm a very, I like to be alone a lot, but I don't read social media the rest of the day most of the time. I am jealous. I need to get better about that. I feel like I'm in a weird spot with that. Well, you need to be on. Yeah, our community exists on Facebook, and I think part of our success is that community thriving and being always active, and part of that involves me being active on it. But, like, God, I need to figure out a way to, to limit it. And, and, you know, it's really hard because it's really satisfying. I mean, you know, you know, what's nice about what you and I do is, like, we do a lot of work where we help people out, and, boy, it feels good when you're doing all that work to hear nice things about it. It feels fucking great. It does. But then also it's time to get that work done. And yeah, it's not going to get itself done in full transparency. Like the, I, you know, one of the other things I do is I have a list above my desk that makes me look like a psychopath. I just had a, a friend who lived on the futon in my office for three weeks while he like did an internship and like, you know, he'd look at this list above it and he'd be like, dude, you are a fucking psychopath. So what it is, is all the things I'm failing at in life. <laughs> I've had some of those too. <laughs> I, I just, you know, like I make myself stare at everything I'm fucking up. Like the lack of, you know, I was really terrible with my exercise. To, to be honest with you, so part of this moving the studio thing is my landlords were threatening to sue me for $20,000 because to give the story to the listeners, I've for nine months now had a studio I can barely work at during work hours because they decided to rehab the entire building. I'm in a very big building and they've been doing construction around me to the point that like electricity fades so the audio doesn't work on down to just like hammering that you could never record during on down to even just just putting the workers lunch break below my control room, which is pretty soundproofed. But then they did something where they knocked down a, the roof and everything. I'm part of it. So you could hear every conversation that I'm doing vocals in my control room and they start imitating the singer. And then he gets so insecure. He can't sing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so, the, you know, to say I had a perfectly stable studio for 13 years and then with no notice that's just come on. So I, Try to say, I'm not paying rent until you resolve this. The, the, my landlords don't even email me about not paying rent. We have two interactions in 10 months. And then they're like, well, we're going to sue you. Then I'm like, you told me we were going to discuss a amount and what compensation would be. And then you didn't write me back for 100 days when I would be texting you what's going on. So I've had this crazy upheaval of a thing. And the kind of lesson uh, I learned of this is like, there's also this thing of like, document 
all your failures and also take really, really, really seriously. When somebody starts doing you wrong, look that in the eye. It's very easy at first to go, oh God, I can't, I have to put this happening. I got to focus on this record. Some of these things you got to really look in the eye and like I wrote to look at the eye and then like, you know, another thing, like what really saved me in this, honestly, was a record producer skill. New Jersey is a one party consent state, which means you can record things without another person's consent. Oh, yes. And so I learned this. My girlfriend got very badly bullied in a hospital recently, um, like to the point like people were blackmailing her. And then I was like, you know, just turn on your voice recorder on your iPhone. And then we had everything we needed to get these people caught. So I did the same to my landlords and now there's no lawsuit. But to say I wasn't sleeping, highly stressed and overly drinking, absolutely. And that goes on the list is like, you drink too much. Look at this. I mean, you know, another big thing I'm very big on is like, I have reminders on my iPhone that go off on the hours every day of things I'm supposed to do. Like, have you done your second exercise of the day before lunch? 9 p.m. You should have eaten dinner by now because I am terrible at eating dinner before 9 p.m. There's so many tools that you can use that may make you look like a psychopath to other people, but you can always just put initials in them. And then as long as you know what it means. I think that this is great. Okay, so when you're like talking, I want to get a little bit more into like looking things in the eye. So when you're talking about your own failures on that list, mm -hmm. like, okay, let's, let's take exercise, for example, because exercise is something you have to do, right? It's uh, something that you can only fix not doing exercise by doing exercise. So on that list, is it a plan to do exercise, like yeah. daily exercise, or is it you're fucking up at exercise? Like what? What does it say? I'm going to read it to you. Like, it, it, it literally just says you need to break the skinny fat thing and work on your chest. Like, I'm one of those people. It's like, you know, I bike ride 12 miles a day. I have no fat on my arms, no fat on my legs, but I have a gut on my stomach because I drink beer and I don't do anything to work on my chest. And now I need to do that because I'm just tired of looking at myself looking this way and I feel bad for my girlfriend. And it's like one of those things like I eat really well, but there is this thing that you get when you're 40 years old that if you don't work on your chest, sometimes that's just not going to do it. I have um, don't get drunk so you're motivated the next day. To be honest with you, last week, I was drinking a little excessively. It was the last week of the summer and like I was having a few too many drinks and then I was like the next day I was groggy at work and now I'm like a little behind on work and I had to work through the weekend because of it. I don't want to work through the fucking weekend. Oh, I want to see what this list looks like physically. Like how, like, I, well, well, I want to see. We're not sharing like, that with anybody else, but, 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 but you're, you'll get a text. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, no, I won't share it. I just, no, for my own sake, because like, because I'm trying to like uh, improve myself as a person too a lot and there's you know the thing is that once you start going down that path mm -hmm. of like when you get serious about wanting to be better yeah um like it can get really ugly because you really have to you know you got to be honest with yourself yeah. and once you start in one place you know that honesty thing self-honesty then it it trickles to other parts of your life and before you know it um, you've got a lot to work on and, you know, it's not easy and it's not pretty. And it's just interesting to me to see people who are doing a similar thing, like who are confronting their demons, like proactively, how they go about doing it. Yeah. In, in a way that's constructive and not like self-demeaning or unmotivational. Because there's a lot of ways that you can approach your, your less desirable traits and just make yourself feel like shit, you know, and not want to work because you beat yourself up over it too much like there's a I think there's an art and a skill to being able to 
confront these things in a way where you still want to fix them. Yeah, and I, you know, and this goes back to the divergent street thing. Some people are already hard on themselves enough. I'm not. I'm a pretty self-congratulatory person, so you got to teach me about that. I'm yeah. not. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, I, I think we've actually had this before. Like it's like, <laughs> and like, but there's you know, so there was a thing when I was younger, like when I was starting out, and like when I was really like making waves in my career and starting to get records on MTV all the time and things like that. I had a saying from Alan Douches, our friend. Um, Alan would beat me down with like the uh, saying results, not reasons. Um, when I worked for Alan for years, um, when I would not kind of not get somebody right, he'd just say results, not reasons. Like, I don't want to hear a fucking excuse. Like, get it fucking right. And that could be, you know, if for those who don't know Alan, Alan is the cheerfulest, nicest, most supportive man. And it doesn't sound that way from this, but he had like a he really, is. yeah, and he had, but he had a great point. It's like, when you listen to a record, you don't get to make excuses and tell people context. They don't care that you didn't have money. You don't care that the band didn't rehearse. They want to hear something good and figure it the fuck out. And, you know, that results, not reasons trickled everywhere. But to say that, like when I had that on my desk where I mixed that every band wasn't doing an imitation of my voice saying that over and over again, uh, <laughs> like, like still to this day, like I'll run into people that book like, results, not reasons and like imitate me. It's almost 20 years later. Yeah, that that kind of stuff would happen to me, too. But you know what? Um Whatever works, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think. Whatever gets you through the day, really. Like, whatever you have to tell yourself in order to do your best work. One of the things, actually, that I have found with self-improvement that's mm -hmm. the hardest. It's not so hard anymore, but I, I'm saying this more for people that are a little younger mm -hmm. and might be the beginning of their path to trying to improve themselves is that the people around you will make fun of you for it. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's And there, there's no way around that because, and I think that it's because there's a few things happening. Like, first of all, self-improvement, uh, a lot of it, um, like the way that it's packaged when it comes in a product form is really cheesy. Yes. And so there's a stigma that comes with it of, of like legitimately cheesy shit. So that's one. Two, a lot of people who create self-help products are scammers. So there's that stigma too. So if you're telling people that you're trying to do this stuff, um, you're already fighting this stigma that you're like joining a cult or <laughs> like becoming a cheese ball or, you know, some weird shit. Um, and so you're going to, and so that's one side of it is the stigma. Then the other side of it is that people, uh, you know, people's favorite topic is themselves. Yes. <laughs> and um, they don't like to hear that you're trying to, you know, trying to fix something that they potentially have to fix. Like, for instance, um, you know, I've been vegetarian for like 25 years and I don't, I'm talking about it now, but I don't talk about it to other people unless it comes up. I'm bringing this up because of the yep. context, all yep. context, but I, I don't care what other people eat. Like, I yep. don't give a fuck. I never have. And it's a totally personal thing. I don't have political reasons for it. I don't associate with vegetarian movements. Like, I don't give a shit. But 
if I'm at a restaurant, you know, like at a steakhouse or something, and I'll go to steakhouses, mm-hmm. I don't care. And I'm not, and I don't care if people order fucking bloody steak around. I don't care. But if I'm at in that scenario and I just order like some side dishes or whatever, because it's the only thing on the menu, I'm totally fine. But when people figure out, you know, they'll start asking me why I didn't order a steak or something. And I'll tell you, know, I'll tell you if you ask, then they'll start telling me why they're not vegetarian. <laughs> yes. I didn't ask. <laughs> I didn't ask. Like, I don't care. Like, it's fine. But like they'll get they'll start to get guilty or if you're you know if you stopped drinking or something I know no. from friends of mine who have had drinking issues who have stopped drinking they've told me about this like uh, you know they'll be at dinner with somebody who wants to have a glass of wine and they don't care if the other person has a glass of wine but the other person will start like justifying why they want the glass of wine when it's just like dude have the fucking glass of wine who cares but uh, but like that's the other side of it so you're fighting a stigma and then also you're de- you're going to trigger people's insecurities about it so just so you know when you get started down the path of self-improvement you're going to be dealing with a lot of bullshit from oftentimes the people closest to you you got to do it anyways. As you get older, you're going to care less and less. You know, I learned a really good thing. I was out with a friend who's like literally never even tried alcohol type person. And they made a really good point. You know, if there's a thing that you can learn and it's like you're kind of hitting on all of these things without it being the, the actual rules of it is like one, when somebody tells you they don't do something that's normal in society, it's the most, usually the most boring thing for them to talk about and you can just move on and you don't need to say why you did and they don't need to say why they did move on. And then two... Exactly what you said. You know what, when they say like you could learn something from everybody, the best qu- thing to do to talk to somebody is just go, so what have you been excited about lately? What have you been learning lately? What's wh- What's been interesting that's going on with you lately? If you ask those four questions instead of talking about for the fucking hundredth time why somebody doesn't eat fucking meat or somebody doesn't drink, it's the same fucking answer almost every time. Have you heard it five times? Fucking move on. Do you not know this? It's like, who cares? Talk about something else. There's a million things to talk about that you'll get way smarter if you just ask the right questions. When you're a record producer, as everybody who's listening to this podcast try to be, you're in the business of meeting strangers and becoming their friend very fast. That is very fast. <laughs> literally your business. The best way to do that is, what are you excited about? What are you doing for a living? What are you thinking about doing for a living? What are, you, what are you excited to do aside from this? You know, like a question I ask in my podcast a lot of time is like, what's the thing outside of audio that you're really good at that not many people know about? That shit is so much more interesting than, oh, you're black? Tell me about that. Like, or what, are, what are you odd? Like when I hear people say shit like this, there's no need to get into these like normalized cultural stigmas and hear more about this that the person's probably explained to you 60 times when you could talk about something that'll be interesting to both of you. Man, I love hearing about the real lives of the people that I've recorded because you meet yeah. some fascinating people. Like I, like you f- end up finding out that someone is like an infectious disease researcher or was in special forces and did all kinds of crazy shit. Or like you never know. Once I, I had cartel members at my house and oh, wow. it was it was kind of scary but at the same time I, and I didn't want to ever repeat it and I was very happy when they left but I can't say it wasn't interesting <laughs> it was very fascinating and you develop a rapport very very quickly when you can get personal and you can show an interest in the people that uh that you're working with I think I mean it even on the most basic levels like when you're going to look for a job or an internship the same way that you have to well, you don't have to, but you really should know who you're 
applying with, you should do your research. And if you're going to a certain studio, you should know their history. You should know what types of bands work there, who's worked there, what like what their deal is. Like if you're going to go intern at NRG, you should know the history of NRG. They'll they'll like that. Yeah. They take they take pride in being NRG. So if you if you go in not knowing the history of NRG and a bunch of other potential interns do know the history of NRG, they're going to you know, they're already going to talk to those guys instead. But it's the same it's the same thing, but just on a more personal level when you're trying to you know, establish a relationship that's going to create good work. The more rapport, the more quickly you can get, the better. And what's better, like I said, than talking about people's favorite topic, which is them. <laughs> what I think that was also interesting is my favorite quote from the creativity book I wrote um, is this uh, Arthur Schopenhauer quote, which is uh, chance favors the connected mind. And what that means is, is like... It's true. You know, good ideas, especially in the arts all come from like you happen to see two things and put them together and be like, oh, you know, if I do this and this and like that chance increases when you get people to talk about their passions and the things they're hearing that not everybody understands. And okay, sure, you're going to get failures with a couple people, but the majority of the people you encounter are going to have something really interesting to say. And then never mind, you can also, if you see they're interested in what you're interested in, they know a lot about it, that's an avenue to go down for the entire session. And honestly, people like who they're who are interested in them and that's more of a chance of you getting that next record is I, I know it's been said on this podcast a million times because I've heard it said a million times is it's not always how good a job you did on the record. It's how much they like being in a room with you. Absolutely. Uh, it's uh, we're working on uh, we're finishing up our course career builder right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think by the time that this podcast comes out, career builder will be in launch mode. Mm -hmm. Um so we're launching on the 8th, and then it's going to be on sale till the 20th. But I'm uh, I'm finishing up some of my sections. I just did a really long one on... My three sections were uh, booking, um, and it's more about like uh, the, um, the technical side of booking, but then networking mm -hmm. and internships. Um, and I mean, my networking section is like an hour long, the internship section is like three hours long. I've got to cut it down. But the one thing that I kept coming back to, and you know, this is based on a lot of research and, and just all my experience, the one thing that I really kept coming back to and just thinking about in my own life is that the, uh, the thing that's really helped me network well is that I can find almost anybody interesting for some reason like mm. something like and it doesn't matter if like on paper i think their job is boring or i think that they're not that smart or something like that i can find a way to be fascinated by them and to get them to really talk about what they're into and then they're no longer boring and i mean i have found ways to find to find a fast food job that someone else did fascinating all the way to an airline pilot or like you never you never know who you're going to be talking to but there's always something there's something you can key in on I feel like always or almost always like there's something you can key in on and relate with there's something about what everybody does that uh is at least a little bit unique 
I think, that you can find. And you have to find those things in order to be able to connect with people quickly. It's totally true. And you know, it's like a funny thing. It's like you say the fast food thing. So one of the other things I do, it's pretty rare I do this, but I was doing it a lot for a while is I did a lot of um, installing sound systems in restaurants, which also for all of you out there who understand audio, let me tell you this in your town, since you're probably not going to do it in Brooklyn where I live and it's fine. I'm not going anywhere else. Putting Sonos systems into walls and setting up the internet is the easiest way to make money in the entire world because they will pay you far too much money to do it. So if you need a side hustle, take it from me. But watching how efficient some kitchens are and seeing the way they do work has totally affected how I have my assistants do some of the work. Yeah, it's like a fucking factory. Yeah, and it's like literally... Um, I did a consult on a new business from the guy who does Shake Shack. Just seeing some of the little things they were doing to build the place and like, I, you know, watching the construction that's going on in my building now, it's fucking chaos. Every day they just do a different thing and there's no order to it. Watching that they know every layer that like when one person finishes this part of the wall, da, 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 it goes down the line. I was like, hmm, you know, watching the way this shared thing is and then all of a sudden I figured out a new way to do like the file sharing that we have just a separate Dropbox that's like staying current during the session. Things like that inspire your efficiency and how fast you get done things. Like I know you guys did a lot on that speed mixing thing. It's like, there's always ways to find that new stuff that like gets you better. And this is how you find that inspiration is going out in the world and trying to find what you can apply in field theory to your thing. Absolutely. It's the fast food thing is a great example, man, because that's like a job that people talk shit about and mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, frankly, nobody really wants to do that job. That's not a career destination in most people's minds. So that's why I'm saying, like, even in that, you know, the, the efficiency is what I find fascinating about it, exactly what we were talking about. But, like, there is always, there's always something. And, you know, so, like, what we touched on a little bit, too, is, like, I've been slowly kind of starting to do a little bit more film work just because, you know, I've recorded a pop punk record 300,000 times. I don't need to do it again. Mm -hmm. So... I got some film gear. Um, my girlfriend and I have been working on making a movie. We wrote a script. We're going to do this when our schedules permit. And so I, you know, bought all the things. It's not very expensive to get into film sound. It's really like, you know, to be honest with you, your overhead mics are often with the same type of mics they use for close miking indoors, a shotgun microphones for outdoors. And then, you know, really, um, if you have the power you could be taking your converters and your laptop to do it. It's probably better to have a field recorder like a sound devices or a Zoom, but it's a pretty minimal investment. And that's another thing you can do as a side hustle. But what I learned, I bought one of these road, I'm going to get the letters wrong, but it's like NGH4 uh, shotgun mics. Mm -hmm. Dude, that thing in the drum room sounds fucking incredible. And I had seen over the years, like I can remember like John and Yellow using a shotgun mic one time I walked into the studio 20 years ago. I'm like, ah, I, you know, whatever. I don't need to try that. I don't see anybody else doing it. I'm like, what the fuck was I doing the last 20 years when I had this fucking knowledge and I didn't try this? It sounds fucking insane. And it's like truly like given my drum sound like new life like that in 1176. And it's like all of a sudden you have this whole new excitement that just really concentrates the kick of the snare and doesn't take up much of the cymbals. It's like, why the hell isn't everybody doing this? I have a similar story, actually, when Jason Sukov's assistant, Ron, was studying film a lot when I first got to Audio Hammer, and he was telling me about the parabolic mics that they ah. use in football games. Yes, yeah, like very to, similar. 
Yeah, and so he created, he made one, like, because they're really, really expensive, mm -hmm. the good ones. Like, they're not, we weren't going to get one. So he rigged something together with a ride cymbal and a microphone to kind of, like, create, like, a, like you know, a poor man's parabolic. And it, uh, and it was so fascinating and, like, inspiring, and it, it sounded really cool, and it was just a new way to, new way to capture things, and it was all based on you know, the stuff that he was learning through studying how to film stuff, you know, it just added, like, a new cool thing to, to try. That's right. And, it, yeah, and that and that's the thing is, is, like, God, it's, like, there's so many things. Like, I realized that, like, when I was re researching my creativity book, you're like, oh, I'm starting to know everything in this. It's, like, when I started that creativity book, I thought I knew so much. When By the time I got done, I'm like, wow, the year and a half before I learned all that stuff about creativity, I knew fucking nothing, and I'd been doing this for 17 years at that point. It's like, I literally knew nothing. Let's take a second to talk about the summit. I know we touched on it for a second earlier, but uh, I just want to talk about it some more because um, you're going to be there, which I'm very, very excited about. It's about goddamn time. I really wanted you to be at the first one, but we just ran out of space. And we're, we're out of space at this one, too. But I booked you. I booked, you were the first person I booked because I didn't want to have you not come to this one. But for people wondering what the summit is, is URM now throws this annual event where producers, engineers, audio people from all over the world come together for a weekend. They hang out, they network, and then they learn in a, a series of presentations from our speakers. So, so for instance, this year we've got Jesse Cannon coming, Taylor Larson, Kurt Ballou, Blasco, who uh, manages Zach Wilde, plays bass for Ozzy Osbourne, Mike Mowry's coming, Andrew Wade is going to be there, Kane and Kevin Churko are going to be there, Billy Decker, Mike Kalajian is going to be there, Bo Rochelle. It's a pretty damn good lineup of speakers and, you know, about 120 to 150 URM students will be there as well from all over the world. We're talking Australia, Norway, Finland, Mexico, Canada, the US, Germany, UK, like all over the world. What I always try to tell people is there's a reason for why business people fly to have meetings. And when the most important meetings take place, they take place in person. And there's a reason for why the best internships are going to happen in person and not online. And there's just a reason for why when things are important, they happen in the real world. And that's because that's the best way to connect with people. And that's the only way that you could really get to know people. And in a industry like this, which is so relationship driven, your network is going to basically determine what comes of your career. And I can't really think of a better way for an up and coming engineer to meet their meet their peers because they could go to NAM. But the problem with NAM is well first of all a lot of them can't get into it. But second of all, in NAM, if you're trying to meet your heroes, well your heroes are gonna be surrounded by like five hundred to a thousand other people that want their time. Not just that, your heroes are also going to be hanging out with their friends. And it's it's just, it's not exactly a place to really, you know, if you're an up-and-comer to network with higher-level people, you're not going to really get their time of day. Like, for instance, when Blasco was my manager, he was my manager. Like, I talked, I had, like, a lot of projects with him. And when I saw him at NAM, I'd get 30 seconds of his time. And, like, we talked almost every day back then. Um, it, it's... 
it's just not the best environment for that. The thing with this is everyone who's going has invested in the ticket and, you know, a flight and they're, you know, so they've already qualified themselves as super serious. It's not that many people. It's like 150 people tops. And you're not going to get to hang out with these people anyplace else. When else are you going to get to hang out with people who are going through the same struggles as you, but live halfway across the world. So many of them at the same time. And when else would you get the chance to hang out with so many of these speakers and, you know, people who have made it happen, like the Billy Deckers of the world, the Blascos of the world, the Churcos of the world. Like, when else are you going to get to hang out with them for an entire weekend where you can see them at the bar and just go up to them, or you can see that they're having breakfast and walk up and sit down and just chill with them and become friends. Where else can that happen? I don't know of any place else. So it's a really, really special thing. I don't know if I've done the best job of articulating how cool it is, but you should just go to urmsummit.com, watch the video that we put together, and come hang out with us on November 9th or 12th. All right, now that I've rambled about it for a little bit. Well, what I'll say is, is, you know, my career would be nowhere without the ability to do that. And truthfully, for me, working at West West Side... All the best producers were coming in, and a lot of the reason I got good gigs was, like, I got to be close to people like that. And then I even, I think I was, like, 20, 23, and I was sober, I might add. I started organizing a producer drinks night in New York, and that did, I mean, still to this day, the only reason I landed at the studio I landed at in a week, and I have, like, a new studio that's going to arguably be better than my last one, is those drinks. I did that in, like... 2002, I want to say. And I would have a drink site. I would drink uh, bitters and soda. No one knew. Being around other people, getting the ideas and building that network and ha- being on people's radar and knowing when there's things like, I, I think of now, you know, my buddy Brian, who works for me and uh, co produces records with me, I was mastering a ton of stuff for him. And then, like, he was like, I'm really looking to do something. Came up for a weekend and hung out. I was like, you know what? We happen to be looking for another engineer you're already hired if you want it. Mm-hmm. The the in-person time gets you opportunities. Absolutely. There's I can think of, so there's this one guy who came to the summit last year. His name is John McLucas. He's one of our uh, most uh, high achieving students. So he moved himself to LA and uh, slept in the floor of his tiny ass studio for like a year or something and while he was building up his client base to the point where now he, you know, now he has a place of his own to live, and he just hired, um, he just hired an assistant. Guess where he met his assistant? It's someone he met at the summit. Oh wow! Who, uh, who? But they didn't agree to work together at the summit. They just hung out, and so they just hung out. And months and months later, uh, he needed help with something, and that guy was available, and that guy offered to help him on something that he didn't even really know how to do. I think it was vocal editing. He just like decided to take, just give it a shot for him. He did a really good job and they hit it off even further. And now that guy just moved or is moving, Stephen Ward's his name. He's moving to LA or moved to LA and you know, they have a whole, whole thing going on. And there's a bunch of stories like that of people who hit it off and are now partnered in real life. Like, uh, um, there, there's just a bunch of them. Or, you know, people are saying that now they are in touch with, like, say, Billy Decker mm-hmm. or something. They, they can just hit him up whenever and get advice from him. People who went to the summit 
for instance, I know that, you know, they would be going through Vegas or through Nashville and would just hit up one of the instructors we had at the summit last year, like Billy Decker, Kane Cherko. And now they can go to the studio and hang out for a day and network with them. And now the, these high level producers are in their friend circle. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to become Billy Decker's assistant or anything like that, but it just means that they have one more person in their corner who might introduce them to the right person down the road. You never know. And sometimes even it's just knowing, knowing that person getting the answer on a quick thing is sometimes yes. the most invaluable thing. Like, honestly, it's so so funny. Like, Stuart Richardson, who is in The Lost Prophets, is a great producer down in Florida. It's like, you know, him and I casually started hitting it off because he read my book, and we had a mutual friend in um, Jeff Rickley from Thursday. And it's funny now, it's like him and I are bouncing things off each other all the time, and, you know, he's so good. Like, you know, I hear his mixes, I get inspired to redo my mixes. And it's like the funny thing. And then we did a record together last year where he came up and used my street because he had to work in New York. And like these relationships are what blossoms and they usually blossom from little things over a lot of years. And you have to be really long sighted about that. The one thing I said in my uh, in my networking section of the career builder course is that networking is something that occurs in the short term but plays out in the long term that's thousand percent dead on it's uh, i i'm i i totally believe it like a lot of these relationships that i've made like here's an example gus gus g former guitar player for ozzy osbourne okay yeah yeah, um, yeah. i mixed uh, me and jason sukoff mixed a firewind record for him in like 2012 but uh, and that was when he was Aussie's guitar player, so it was a big deal for us. It, it was actually my only gold record. It was a Sweden gold, but it's my only plaque. So that aside, yeah, I have I have a loser loser wall, <laughs> one little plaque on it. But um, anyways, I met him in two thousand seven, um, just by a chance, because Steve Joe from Century Media wanted to confront a RV driver who was ripping bands off. Uh, and this RV driver had ripped off, off my band in 2007 and had also ripped off Firewind. And But it, what I mean by ripped off is, like, stole a bunch of money and stranded oh. them kind of thing, like thousands of dollars. Oh. And so Steve Joe's, uh, and now he works for Prosthetic, but he's one of those A&R guys that actually is, like, a good person who cares. And he got sick of his bands getting screwed. He hit me up one day. He's like, hey... That guy that screwed you guys um, with that RV, he's going to be in Atlanta today. Gus G and Firewind are in Atlanta today. I'm flying. I'm landing in a few hours. Will you come confront him with me, and I'll get you your money back? Wow. It's like, it's like okay. So <laughs> this is the for my first time meeting Steve and Gus G and stuff, and we met in a parking lot. <laughs> it was so, and walked up to this guy's RV it was totally like one of those it was totally like one of those like uh to catch a predator type shows this guy was so weird anyways we got our money back and um but that's how i met gus and we didn't agree to work together right then and there or anything but from that point on you know we emailed every once in a while or like would send messages back and forth on facebook you know whatever it was casual like bumped into each other in nam said hello Five years later, though, when I was working with Jason and Gus G had leveled up in his life significantly as lead guitar player for Ozzy, uh, I got 
an email asking if Jason and I wanted to mix the new Firewind records. Fuck yes. Five years, you know? Like, that's, like I said, it occurs in the short term, like right then and there, you got to do, you have to not smell bad and not be a punisher and be cool in the short term, but you can't expect anything out of it. Like, you can't think about, you can't try to predict what's going to happen and you can't expect anything out of the interaction other than just making a friend because you know who knows what's going to happen five years down the line most of my fruitful partnerships relationships friendships career-wise are things that are relationships that started like that and then eventually years later it came something so finn finn who you know our director of marketing i met him in 2009 at the uh Revolver Awards. He came with the Metal Sucks guys. He was writing for Metal Sucks as Sergeant D. I was writing for Metal Sucks. Um, and so we we all met up there and we got a bite to eat before that. And me and him exchanged like five words. And But like from that point on, since I knew him, if I saw an article he wrote for Metal Sucks I, that I like, I've always thought he was a brilliant writer. So mm-hmm. every once in a while he'd write something that I keyed in on. I'd write to him and be like, hey, like, I, I see that you thought of this and this, but if you thought of that, we'd chat a little bit, you know? That, years later, turned into him offering me a gig at Creative Live, you know? Um, years later, that led to him being our director of marketing and, like, really helping URM turn into a, a powerhouse. Like, this shit takes time. Yeah, and it, it's funny thing is that you guys ended up being a reciprocal thing of, like, then, you know, you guys offered him a position... He works for you now, and it, you, and you know, Finn and I, for instance, the audience doesn't know it as an even like crazier story, is like uh, in 1997, Finn was so pimp- you're okay. So you're one of those people that he talks about that he's known for 20 years. So I maybe you don't know this. This is like the funniest story. My best friend, who is now a political science professor, who's a really big conservative writer, my childhood best friend, who's a punk kid, and him and Finn were pen pals. And Finn came and hung out with us one weekend because we grew up in a town Finn lived in for a little while. Amazing. So I meet Finn, same as you, like 10 minutes. But then what happens, let's fast forward. In 1997? I think it I, it could be 98. Well, still. You know. Yeah, it's insane. So the point being, I then, I do this thing, and this is probably helpful for the audience because you can do this for your band, is... I find similar people to me. So there's this guy, Steve Rennie, who did, was doing a music business yes. thing at the time. And f- I searched podcasts he was on, and I listened to all of them to see if I should pitch these people for me being on it because I just put out a book in the music business. And so I listened, and I'm like, oh, this guy seems cool that's uh, doing this podcast. I'm like, I'm going to write him right now, 2 in the morning. I get an email back. Let's talk tomorrow. Sure, sounds good. Finn and I talk, and I'm like, dude, your name is so familiar. And then we figure it out that we had hung out before that. And then same thing. Creative Live Instructor, you know, been really good friends ever since, always helping each other out. And that's 20 years down the line. And also just like I always tell this people, too, is like that one email. I mean, Creative Live checks are very nice. You do think it's done a very nice thing for my career. And it was one one email and also a great friendship from somebody I learn a lot from and really like because I just went, you know what? Let's give it a shot. Let's write to this person and see what happens. And it took a while for our friendship to develop. And it was just like one of those things. It obviously accelerated when we realized like, oh, we come from the exact same place. But like, yeah, 
it's those type of things. And you never know when that is. I didn't remember. I couldn't even place his name. I'm like, it just sounds a little familiar. It's interesting, man. Like, yeah, we he became one of my closest friends in the world and also one of my most lucrative yeah. business relationships on with multiple projects over the years. And those creative live checks are nice. And like, it's it's just been... It's like the perfect example of what we're talking about is like that. That's the best scenario yep. is where you become a legitimate friend, like a real life friend where you can talk about real personal shit, like a real friend. Yeah. Where also you have this business relationship that's actually lucrative and and awesome too. Like you do awesome work together and everyone makes money and then you're really actually friends. I mean, I think that's the goal of working in the music industry, I think, is to be able to make shit happen with your friends. Finn actually made a video about it that he just released where he talks about this. But I've said it forever, like, that one of the things that I think is cool about this line of work, for all its problems, one of the things that's cool is that you get to make money with your best friends. That's kind of that's kind of a really cool thing. But these friendships, they only... You know, they only happen if you put yourself in a situation where you can make those initial contacts. And so yeah. for guys starting out, you know, in the middle of Latvia, <laughs> there's a guy coming from Latvia. Um, mm -hmm. You know, where are where is he going to meet people other than coming to something like this? So. And, and yeah, and you know, it's like a really funny thing is like I'm doing a record in Portugal next year. And it's like it's totally like one of those things, too. It's like this is a guy I met because he came and hung out with a friend of a friend and then. Hilariously, band sends me five studios to do it. You know, one of the other studios was better, but I'm like, I know this guy's reliable. I hung out yep. with him. I heard his philosophies on equipment, philosophies on life. I'm like, I'm never going to know these other guys' philosophies on life. Let's do this record here, even though I would love to use that RCA BA6A compressor at the other place. Who fucking cares? This guy's got a great vibe. Let's go. It's more important anyways. Yes. And uh, <laughs> with that. Yes. I gotta, I gotta run, and so I want to thank you for for coming on. Always like, my pleasure. Always a pleasure having you on. Like, uh, and I just think it's I, I I didn't prep for this podcast. So lots <laughs> of some podcasts. Well, I prepped for your last one by reading yep. your book because yes. we were talking about a book you you just put out. I wasn't gonna fake that one, but like uh, with this one, I didn't prep at all. I mean, we talk quite a bit yes. via text, so I knew what was going on with you, but um. But it's it's really cool uh, with you specifically that um, we can have great podcasts that last an hour and a half or two hours, and uh, all we have to do is show up. Yes, love that. Yeah, man, it's cool. As somebody who did 120 interviews for documentaries in the last year, not having to do research before one of these—that's a fucking blast. Yeah, it's it's nice. However, look if uh, if you do put out another book and we're talking about it, I will read the book. Nice, nice. I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. All right, man. Well, you have a great rest of your day. Yes, you too, man. Have a good one. It's great talking to you. Likewise. Take it easy. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Isotope. We craft innovative audio products that inspire and enable people to be creative. Visit isotope.com for more info. This episode is also brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be across all devices. Visit sonarworks.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and subscribe today.